Welcome everyone, uh, you, you're you listening to the BizPod podcast, Behaviour Intervention Support Network's podcast and today I've got Adam Williams from AJ Williams Hypnotherapy back in and we're just going to spend, we've, we haven't got much time have we mates, we've got like 15-20 minutes, um, I just wanted to you know, start exploring some of the, the topics that I thought would be interesting to some of our listeners and one of the things that I'm always kind of thinking about, reading about, trying to understand um, the developmental aspects of is emotions and feelings and, and things like that. So um, apologies if there's a bit of background noise, we're sort of plugged in my office, which is not the quietest of places, um, which I'm currently in discussions with the directors about. I think they're giving me two options, either uh, lump it or get a get a shed in the car park at the moment. But, there you go. <laughs> um, but I think, um, so obviously emotions massive wide topic for us to kind of try and pin down in 20 minutes um, but I guess there was a couple of current bits of reading that I've come across that I wanted to sort of share with you Adam get your thoughts on see if it relates to anything that you're sort of working on at the moment sounds good sounds yeah um, obviously your background is quite focused on the anxiety regulation but then that is an emotion that I think takes place neurologically in very similar ways to other negative emotions Mm -hmm. and we were sort of speaking earlier about how some of the techniques that you've sort of looked at for anxiety regulation could relate to any difficult emotion really yeah definitely um we've just been talking as well just um before the podcast started about how um just in general these emotions um boiling hot coffee over sam harris here yeah (laughs) you did pretty well to keep the emotion out of your voice but i just literally over the place so no, you you carry on with that yeah, train of thought it. i'm going to get a cloth okay okay um <laughs> so yeah we're just having a talk really about how sort of emotions affect behavior um and obviously that's something that's quite well established how um obviously how you're feeling how how those sort of things um sort of uh, uh, well yeah as i say making you feel obviously has a really big impact on how you're acting and your general behavior um, but the interesting thing that um, I'm sure Sam's going to talk to you about in a bit more detail once in a few moments, once he's, once he's run his hand under the tap for a while. But, uh. <laughs> no, I didn't get any on me. It's a really exciting podcast. But maybe perhaps we should entitle it, it not discussion about emotions, but Sam spills his coffee. There we go. I'm sure we'll be using the, anal- the, sort of the analogy of you spilling your coffee in the next sort of 10 or 15 minutes. Do you know what? I mean, it's a quite a good example of, of actually some of the... We talk a lot... Um, when we think of when I think of emotions, I quite often use the Dan Siegel hand brain model, which I think we mentioned in the last podcast. Mm-hmm. So you've got your top brain, bottom brain. Uh, your bottom brain being your amygdala limbic system. That's your kind of emotional recognition center. And so when you have a stimulus, i.e., I just spilled my coffee everywhere, that amygdala triggers a response. There you go. I was able to just about catch that response <laughs> with my top brain and think to myself, I'm on a podcast. I don't really want to start again and record the whole thing from scratch. Don't swear, which is a bit of a go-to position for me when something like spilling hot coffee happens. Um, so I think what happened there was instead of fight or flight, I went into that freeze mode, mm-hmm. took, a, took a second, used that top brain and just went and got a cloth and explained it on the podcast rather than... Um, Sounding like a sailor, <laughs> or swearing like a sailor. You could see it in your eyes. Yeah, you know, coming yeah. out of your mouth. You could see. Oh yeah, they can't see the body language. Um, 
the the really the sort of the thing that's interesting me at the moment is a, a particular book actually, and um, the book is How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett, and I think I've mentioned it to you before, but it it's kind of it's a it's a summary of lots of the most recent neuroscience and research talks about what emotions look like in terms of in the brain in terms of brain activity when they put people into fmri machines and then register them and register the responses the brain has to certain emotional stimuluses and what's i think fascinating for me is the idea one of the ideas that comes through in the book early is the idea that whilst the amygdala fires in the same way for most people in terms of you know, if there's a stimulus, say say an extremely scary or difficult stimulus, that amygdala fires, same way for most people. But then the parts of the brain that process and give that emotion a name and a language and a, and a feeling or a full emotion, if you will, um, they're different from person to person. It's usually in the same parts, like the, the prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobe, you know, that's kind of where we start to think about emotions and our emotional literacy takes place. But what this book is kind of suggesting that the research shows is that sadness for me, for example, is not the same as sadness for someone else, or it doesn't happen in the same part of the brain. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's different neural pathways that would be connected to what our own personal experience of sadness is and what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that's, that's a really interesting point because I'm working with young people a lot now on sort of developing their understanding of emotions, giving them a language for how they feel. But you've always got to err on a side of caution because your happiness is not someone else's happiness. And it's about teaching young people that there are scales, you know, sliding scales. You know, you happiness is just is not just a, a linear sort of black and white term. It's it's a it's a concept that we can be in different places within, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, from what you said about there being sort of the sort of let, letting these young people know um, well anybody letting anybody know there's actually ways of changing these things mm. and again the fact that it is on a bit of a continuum um, I can't remember the name of the model again we were looking at some before. Russian um, type thing it's yeah it's, it's like the colours of the sort of uh, the, the red the red orange yellow green blue sort of colours but all with, all with the different size sliding scales of all the sort of emotions yeah I think I can I can google whilst we're recording yeah. so I can do but again, sort of one thing that sort of came to mind bit came to mind as you were talking then is um, again the Dan Siegel you've mentioned in, in the previous podcast that we were talking mm. um, I'm just reading the book at the moment of his called Brainstorm yes um, and again that's really interesting about the, the teenage it, brain exactly and, yeah. it talks about the teenage brain and it's written specifically for young people and parents of young people mm-hmm. or just anyone with an interest I suppose in it um, but again it talks then about the prefrontal cortex development and about that being the sort of the last part of the brain's development mm. and very much for a reason um, you know to make sure that again it doesn't stop doesn't stop developing until about twenty five years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think he said, and um, and again, that's really important evolutionarily for this for the fact that we need to actually understand our society. We actually need to understand where we fit into that society to give us the best possible chance then of survival. Mm. So that prefrontal cortex being the last thing to develop actually fits in then to the fact that sort of working with young people, again, if we can build in strategies and we can sort of teach strategies and skills for them to be sort of integrating and building their prefrontal cortex sort of un- below the age of 25 mm. and again and beyond but especially below the age of 25 
can really give them that sort of that sort of a, a better chance then of having that well integrated sort of brain and and as an offshoot of that obviously being able to regulate their emotions and actually have those I'm on a podcast so I better not swear um, sort of moments there just built into their day and mm. again um, that was just one thing that sort of jumped out at me about what you were saying just then Tom. Definitely. That that wheel that we were talking about with the sliding scale, uh, it's something like Puchniks or something like that. Um, I think that's a Puchniks, wheel of emotions, that's the one. I mean, I use that sometimes to look at emotional literacy in different languages and different terms, but... How do you spell that, sorry, John? P-L-U-T-C-H-A-C-H-C-H-I-K. But it's it's just again it's the idea that you know what that gives you is a nice visual to use to show the sort of different levels of of sort of emotions such as happiness or joy or rage. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading something earlier though that was kind of boiling it down and suggesting that there's only really four basic emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's happiness, uh, anger, or disgust as one emotion. Um, I thought oh, was it happiness, anger, or disgust sadness and fear or excitement and we've that kind of doubles up that fear and excitement's an interesting one because again it's like it's like that sort of quote we had last week um which you said you borrowed off me i think i might borrow (laughs) off someone else but just the idea that anxiety could be seen as excitement with bad press if if you are in a fear state there is perhaps things you can consciously and cognitively do with your top brain mm-hmm. that would change that mm-hmm. and would change your view of it, you know. And, and coming from a sports psychology background, you, that might sort of ring true about, you know, the excitement before a big game. Is it anxi- excitement or is it fear? Exactly. You know? There was one thing that I remember me and my um, sort of classmates going through university used to get a bit frustrated with because we'd, we'd spend a whole lecture learning something or we'd spend, you know, a whole couple of hours reading a journal and trying to sort of become sort of savvy with the sort of the meanings of it mm. and ultimately in every single conclusion that we ever got to in sports psychology is that it would then boil down to the perception of the individual yeah it was actually something we used to think well we don't even need to read this we know that it's going to be a bit of this bit of that but actually ultimately it's, it's that individual difference. exactly so that is it used to frustrate us but then now as a as a therapist myself it's actually the most um sort of the most insightful thing is to realise that everybody's completely different mm. but actually everybody has the well pretty much the biology and the makeup to actually be sort of trained or or sort of helped along the way into actually building that sort of response that they need so if it is a sports person for example that's uh, you know struggling a little bit with their nerves mm. again it's, it's it's easy enough to reframe it for them to, to class it as arousal opposed to anxiety or um, sort of ex- re-explaining the actual importance of the nervous system being in a slightly anxious slash arousal state to mm. actually perform to their best, um, you know, and that really does. Not only does that help them then to actually go out and perform, but it's actually about the build-up as well, and it's about the not trying to sort of run away from the sensations of the arousal, because again, that's what sort of a lot of people are scared of is or, or fearful of is is not actually the actual sensations. It's about the anticipation of the fact that those sensations are, uh, are on the horizon before, yeah. before a performance or maybe that might be before coming to school going to college but it's about the feeling that is you know ultimately impending that a lot of people have, have trouble with mm. yeah definitely and I think it's I mean it, I, we kind of talked about this last time about the two different types of anxiety and the parts of the brain they might come from and, 
you can almost imagine that negative, just like, so you could say you get a scary stimulus, like a, you know, the, the classic one in sort of human culture and evolution would be a snake or, you know, a wild animal. So you get that stimulus, you get your fight or flight response from your amygdala. And again, you would then kind of be override, well, not, you probably wouldn't be overriding that with your top brain then, you'd just be legging it. Um, but if you, for example, knew recognised it quickly, it was a toy snake, you might be able to control your reaction and use your top brain, that kind of thing. So that kind of anxiety is almost association instinct-based. Mm-hmm. But it would kind of hold true because the brain is dynamic, pathways go both ways, that you could almost talk yourself into bodily anxiety, I guess, because mm-hmm. your, your thought patterns, if they were negative enough, if you were constantly telling yourself... I'm going to fail I'm going to get this wrong you know it's going to be difficult I can't do it mm-hmm. would that could that does that then trigger the, that sort of bodily feeling of sickness you know we, we again you, so we talked last week about the idea of like chicken and egg and it kind of being on a sort of biofeedback loop where your body can create anxiety but your brain well they're both your brain yeah. <laughs> You said like the, the parasympathetic and the yeah, sympathetic. sympathetic. Yeah. But I wonder if they're kind of both both responsible. It's interesting you mentioned that about the sort of the, the body side of things and the actual sort of the symptoms that people feel because, again, I've this is working with clients and I've sort of experienced this a lot myself as well, is as soon as you become aware of a bodily sensation, you will, again, cognitively become hypervigilant then based on your mm. sensations. Yeah. So then you become really sort of... Um, sort of focused on every last sensation that's going through your body and if that backs up your your fear that you had in the first place that it's it's just further uh, another example of how your body's about to go into its fight or flight yeah um another exaggeration of sort of you know how that sort of anxiety can actually it's a matter of time till it perpetuates then into being even worse and, and ultimately that ends in potentially panic attack for some people sometimes that's a learned behavior then so then as soon as they start to feel that slight change in their body, mm. the sensations, again, the hypervigilance then focuses on it. Right, so that... specific sensation. And then that, again, perpetuates the problem and, and almost brings about the... Yeah. Sort of brings about the sort of predetermined... So it's that, like, associative sort of connection with yeah. their past experience. Exactly. And that's where, again, with... Not just with hypnotherapy, but there's lots of therapies out there, again, that you can use just to sort of re- redirect yeah. that initial worry. So if there is a stimulus you can start to, again, you said about using the top brain then, once you understand the stimulus that's, that's causing you a concern, mm-hmm. you can use that top brain then to actually start to um, to interrupt yeah. the perpetuation of that hypervigilance that I mentioned. Lots of long words I'm trying to squeeze yeah. in, but you know what I'm trying to, yeah, yeah, trying yeah. To get at. Well, I think that's a really important message as well, is, is I mean, we was, we, we're just putting together a, a presentation we're going to give tomorrow to some of the young people at NCS, and one of the messages we're trying to send is that, you know, um, behavior, sorry, emotions can affect behavior. So how you feel can affect what you do, but also behavior can affect emotions. So you can do things to affect how you feel. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you are in charge, and if you're not in charge yet, you can be. Um, and I think one of the things I'm quite interested in at the moment, I'm, I'm sort of doing lots of reading and research into people that have used their mind to do exceptional things. You know, like the classic example is someone like Wim Hof, who's focused. Are you a Wim Hof? 
Yeah, yeah, really. definitely. Oh, well, I'm no, now, yeah. <laughs> but he uses that understanding of, of, you know, what the brain can do, good and bad, and how sometimes I think, you know, a lot of his ideas are about focusing on that breathing to kind mm-hmm. of escape all the thoughts that your brain will automatically give you. Yeah. You know, if you're going to, I mean, he does lots of sort of holding you know, breath for long, long periods of time, swimming in ice cold water your automatic brain response is kind of telling you it's cold, get out, you're going to die, all this kind of stuff. And to override that, he just focuses back on the breath. Um, we're running out of time, so next time we're going to need a bit longer with this. I'd quite like to use Wim, the Wim Hof method and the sort of talk about the breathing and the sort of cold immersion as almost a separate podcast because I'm fascinated by Cool. That. Well, what we could do, we it. could look at maybe doing something where we just explore um, breathing as a whole kind of thing we started off talking about emotions we kind of segued a bit um it's always the way I, I i always want to try and give a few sort of ideas to parents or people that are struggling um with certain aspects of emotional regulation things like that at the end um and i guess it's hard to pin down when it comes to emotions but my belief is that emotional language emotional literacy understanding where emotions come from the fact that they can be instinctive but you can also control them and you can think things and feel things um, I think that should just be part of every child's sort of language you know so if you have a young person I would always be encouraging you to be statementing your emotions at certain times letting them know how you're feeling um, you've got to err on caution because some, some young people uh, don't deal well with very negative emotions especially if it's to do with them but you can sort of normalize emotions by talking to young people I guess in a kind of detached way you know uh, oh I went to work today and I had a, an issue with a colleague and, and that we had an argument and afterwards I felt very hurt and frustrated and sad um, but I went into my office and I had some quiet time and, and it made me feel better you know it's, it's about guiding young people through your through emotions with your own experience mm-hmm. we try and do a lot of teaching with young people we teach them this we teach them that you should do this you need to do that you must do this but emotions are not clear you know there's there's no one way of feeling something there's no one way of dealing with a feeling um so my suggestion is that we just give kids as much information as we can or well, not just kids just people as much information as we can and let them make their own decisions around that. Yeah, couldn't um, agree more. Couldn't agree more. And and you know, with regards to you know, so you, your background is the hypnotherapy. Um, I, I'm, I'm I use a, a whole multitude of different types of techniques. You know, CBT type approaches, mindfulness type approaches, narrative therapy type approaches, more psychological, uh, psychology based. You know, ABA type approaches. It there's no one way to do something and actually if you're going to say to someone you can control your emotions you also need to say to them but you need to find the way that's right for you I think mm-hmm. so. and again how long have how long we got what you can summarise mate fantastic because I was just going to say we started off by mentioning about how sort of emotions affect behaviour but also behaviour can start to affect emotions mm. there's a really good TED talk by um, uh, a lady called uh, Amy Cuddy Yes. He talks about sort of standing like a superhero. Is that one? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, it can, it's, it's on YouTube, obviously. There's other yeah. ways of getting hold of it, but that's just got a fantastic sort of dem- demonstration of a study that she 
she did into testosterone and high power poses, so taking up space. Yeah. Um, and that ultimately then sort of does biologically give, um, well, and sort of chemically just gives a surge of testosterone. Testosterone, again, in the anxiety world, is the perfect antidote to the negative effects of anxiety. Mm. So people who have high levels of testosterone, on the whole, again, um, are, are better able to deal with that, those sensations that can be attributed to anxiety, basically. Mm. So that's a really good thing, again, to, to, to tell people that might not be quite so sort of accepting of the cognitive side of things, the yeah. cognitive strategies. Actually, why don't you think about your body? Why don't you change the size, change the sort of amount of space that you're taking up? And ultimately, then that does sink you then into the behaviour. You're then more able to regulate yourself, more able to control potentially that negative side of the anxiety. Um, mm. So that could work with, with with certain young people who, you know, prefer that sort of sort of play that kinesthetic side of things. Just get them to take up space. You know, superhero stances. Um, you know, we've all seen the sort of the animals in the animal kingdom taking up loads of space when they're demonstrating sort of confidence, um, and they can play with that as well, especially for the younger, for sort of yeah. younger, younger teens to play with that. Don't see many anxious silverbacks, do you? No. Silverback no, gorillas. No, no. Although maybe on the inside. <laughs> exactly. Maybe on the inside. Speaking of inside, um, you mentioned about the emotions actually being inside. That inside out cartoon, I don't know if you've seen Oh, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Disney one. Again, depending on the age, again. But I think that everyone can learn a lot from that, from that film. Definitely. I guess with, with, my, with my work, I'm quite often working with young people with autism. And, and the only... This is more of a sort of, a, a sort of caution, cautionary... Uh, cautionary guidance from me, I guess, is that sometimes I think th- we we oversimplify emotions in their teaching. So when someone, because typically kids kind of soak up emotions, they get it. You know, you don't normally in the well, normal I don't like that word, but typically you don't teach kids about emotions at school. And you know, by the by the time they're adults, they've got a language and a literacy for it. But when there's an impact or an impairment such as autism that doesn't happen so we have to go back and revisit it and we, we I mean it used to be one of my bugbears we used to always see these like oh how are you feeling today and there's like a, a smiley happy face mm-hmm. as if that's happiness yeah. <laughs> as if a smiley face is happiness and it, and although it's a good starting point to learn the language and, and associate it we have to be careful that we don't rigid what's the word solidify or make make emotions rigid because then that's when they become less understandable you know because yeah. they don't feel like that you don't you don't you use language that is restrictive but the feelings shape and shift and are dynamic and, and changeable and although I love that inside out cartoon and I know lots of young people and young people with autism that really loved it too you just want to make sure they don't think that it's exactly like that yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. exactly like fear takes over then anger and they have a different agenda mm. it's it, you know that you know fear and anger can be blurry can't yeah. they same sort of thing mm. you could fear i've i've worked with people that come across as angry but when you dig down underneath they're scared mm. you know and uh, yeah anyway so we, that could be a sequel yeah, yeah well we make this a regular Change. thing mate uh, what the um, what the sequel to the film yeah. I think we meant sequel to this no, sequel to Inside Out <laughs> the Inside the Inside Out <laughs> anyway um, thanks for listening I hope it's not been too much waffle this week but we're trying to keep it sort of dynamic and conversational um, not too prescriptive and 
I'm sure Adam would agree with me, but I know I'm always trying to learn and understand more. So this is not, I'm not coming out here saying I'm an expert on emotions. I'm just interested in the topic and want to share what I've learned. Um, so if you've got any ideas about this that relate or you think it would be useful for people to hear and you'd like us to, to know them, um, get in touch with me at sam.harris at cedaronline, that's C-E-D-A online, all one word, dot org, dot UK. Thanks for, thanks for listening, guys. Shouldn't say guys, I don't know. Don't know who's listening. Could be male, female, and also it sounds a bit weird and American. And I've not pressed the stop recording button again. Oh no, you definitely chip that bit out. Well, that could start to be the. It could be the thing, yeah, like the bonus listening. So for any of you that are still listening, well done for getting the DVD extras. (laughs) They weren't that entertaining. Cheers then.